There's a very large mental component. You know, sometimes in the literature we hear it called kind of a change in brain fog. Uh, we also see increased anxiety and depression in this group. And as a physiologist, sometimes I'm asking myself and based on, you know, the interaction with these women is sometimes those changes are based on their unhappiness with their bodies and how they feel. Um, you know, so is it one causing the other or are they interrelated? And so when we look at the benefits of exercise and many nutritional things, so those are some very um, kind of effective strategies to help with the mental health and the sleep. It's not, you know, obviously there's medication for a reason, but those are some, some strategies that can help that women have control of. And sometimes it's recognizing that. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers, to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi everybody, welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and today we're going to look at female nutrition and to help us look at that from North Carolina, we have Professor Abby Smith-Ryan. Welcome to the podcast, Abby. Hi, Nathan. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Oh, fantastic. My pleasure. So you are an expert, a professor of exercise physiology, I understand. And it looks like recently over the years, you've been focusing on women's health, women's nutrition, women's metabolism. So we're going to dive into that today and see all the nuances around um, cyclic hormones through the menstrual cycle in women obviously um maybe can contrast that to women on the pill and then also as women transition into menopause how their fluctuating hormones or their declining or um on the pill sort of stagnant hormones affect metabolism nutrition and and exercise so before we dive in a bit of a maybe a bit of a, a sketch on your background and i could be just of making this narrative in my mind but looking through your past it looks like you've looked at more sort of high-performance exercise and supplementation with certain ergogenic aids. And it seems more recently there has been more of a focus on, don't want to say everyday women, but that, that sort of women who are middle-aged and probably like stretched with duties and time and so forth. I don't know if it parallels your own sort of life now having children and things. Um, so can you describe yeah, your, am I just making this up or has it been a bit of a, a transition yourself? Can you describe your, your journey to date? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I think that is is a fair view. I would see it a little bit different. Um, my approach to research has always been to find effective and feasible approaches to exercise and nutrition. And I, I like supporting the high performance athlete. That's more of like a passion project of, you know, tweaks that we can make. And uh, I think there's some excitement of how do we publish some work that actually has some direct implication to performance in those groups. But most of my work for the last um, probably, you know, 12 plus years has been really helping um, make exercise and nutrition more feasible. And I've always included women in my studies, but I, I think what we've started to recognize is that there are more differences and there's more um, void in the research. There's just more that we need to know. And I also find, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the dietary supplement space, not because I think, 
you know, that that's the only way to go. Uh, but I, there's a lot of data around the fact that women are the largest consumers of dietary supplements, at least in the U.S. Mm. And then when you look at the evidence and the product development and the application, uh, there, there, there is none. There is none. So, um, and even around exercise. And so, there's, it's more of meeting the need of all these women that want the answers and that are buying the products and looking for those answers. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, I think. Sarah Hill, who we just had in the podcast recently, might have discussed it around a lot of the research, and even animal research has been historically on males because, dare I say, we're a, super, a simpler um, species where it, it, it felt like the hormones historically muddied the waters and they um, researchers avoided that. But it's, as you said, the exact opposite where, yes, yeah, certainly in Australia as well, I think they're the primary consumers of supplements and, and wellness and so forth are women so we need to obviously investigate that. So let's yeah dive into how hormones can affect nutrition and physiology and exercise performance. So maybe just a bit of a, a recap. Um, our audience is probably quite familiar, but just describe the, the key sort of sex hormones in um, women and how that broadly affects metabolism. And then we'll do a bit of a deeper dive in maybe certain areas. Yeah, I mean, I'll take a high level, um, the reason why this matters too, and what hormones is, you know, the key hormones are estrogen and progesterone. Uh, as as we transition through life and across the menstrual cycle, we've got, you know, follicular stimulating hor- hormone and, and some things. But I think when we take a collective view of why we should have this conversation is that women are outliving men and there's a significant increased risk in cardiovascular disease, as well as significant increases in, in weight gain. Uh, And so it's really kind of taking 10 steps back to say, like, why is this happening and how can we prevent it? And and that's really, um, you know, looking at some of the hormonal changes across a month for someone that's normal, normally menstruating, because there are some impacts of hormones there. Uh, And then how do those hormones change as we transition into postmenopause when those hormones become kind of lower, things like estrogen and progesterone? So, um, The other thing to think about is most women, at least in the U.S., are taking some form of contraception. So this idea of hormones is is muddied because there's a million different types of contraception, and then you have changes in hormones. And so, you know, I, I don't like to get too hung up in the weeds. There's a lot of really good data about how hormones change across a, a month and across a lifespan. Um, but, you know, what I'd love to share, especially with your listeners, is like you, you can't change a lot of those things. You can by taking a contraception, but really let's understand them and talk about it. So, you know, as a woman, you understand like, oh, this is why I'm feeling a little bit different at this point in the month. Or, yeah, that my body is changing and this is why. Let's ha- How do we tackle it? Yeah, it's a really good point. I think in natural medicine, again, there's been some binaries around hormones like estrogen, quote unquote, sometimes is bad, progesterone is good, and and the view that we can maybe manipulate those. But uh, yeah, as I look more into it, I, as you said, I think it's probably better, I don't want to say surrender to them, but understand how powerful they are, that they, they are difficult to manipulate and probably don't want to manipulate them. Perhaps as we get into the nutrition is like, learning when to adjust your nutritional exercise in around the hormones. I don't know if you want to sort of add or correct or <laughs> to that. 
Yeah, I know. Yeah, you're right. And I and that's a whole I feel that's a hot topic here in the U.S. is um, the. um, Do you cycle? Do you change your exercise over the cycle or, you know, your nutrition across the cycle? And that that's a lot of a, a big conversation right now. Yeah. So um, you've published a few papers recently articulating some of the distinct physiological changes in in women in general and through the cycle and over menopause, chiefly estrogen that seems to be mentioned in your papers. So can you touch upon some of those areas like metabolism, um, fatigability and, and so forth? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. Estrogen and progesterone are the the key hormones that impact these things. But one thing uh, metabolically, when we think about the impacts of estrogen is estrogen um, really facilitates higher fat utilization, which women, you know, not only because we have higher fat stores, but because of estrogen, we tend to um, do better in activities and or rely more on fat for fuel, which has some advantages, particularly if we layer in some exercise and longer endurance exercise. So there's some metabolic differences there. I think another really key metabolic difference is um, the potential impact and changes in protein synthesis. That in one of our studies right now, we're trying to dial into this a little bit closer. Uh, there's some initial evidence that suggests across a menstrual cycle, so you know, approximately 28 days, that with high estrogen and progesterone in the luteal phase, is that women have higher protein breakdown, higher protein turnover, um, which may result in greater muscle soreness and and you know, result in lower kind of muscular adaptations. And then some of our um, current work, too, is that we're seeing a pretty big drop from pre to perimenopause in those protein synthetic responses, Um, really just highlighting this idea. A lot of times we talk about anabolic resistance or the muscle not being quite as responsive to the proteins we eat, and it could possibly be happening earlier in women. And so um, there's some potential hormonal impacts on the ability of the muscle to uptake and utilize proteins and adapt and get stronger. And um, there's a lot of metabolic implications there for insulin sensitivity and some of those things. Yeah, interesting. So just to expand on that, as you mentioned, I don't know if there's still myths and misconceptions around like women and building muscle. Can you highlight like you've articulated one, obviously the you need the muscles for like glucose sinks but also obviously muscle mass declines as we age. And why is that important to try and mitigate? I mean, when we think about specifically for women, I mean, it's important for everyone. But um, one key thing is, you know, when we talk about the glucose disposal and utilization of glucose, it helps prevent diabetes and metabolic syndrome by the ability it improves insulin sensitivity. I think the other piece that is very prevalent in women is that um, having a strong, high-quality muscle also helps maintain bone mineral density, and that's one of the key risk factors for women as they age is a significant decrease in bone mineral density. And so um, the the other element that perhaps you and I didn't get a chance to listen to Dr. Hill's podcast, but 
um, muscle is also uh, very energetically costly. And so it helps maintain metabolism and um, it is directly related to body weight and some of those things. And so if we're losing large amounts of muscle, it has implications not only for our metabolic health, um, but also our bone and also our body composition. Yeah. And you cite in your, some of your research how there is this sort of critical window, it seems, around perimenopause. It seems there is a, and I'm sure probably many women who've gone through that have noticed themselves that the the body composition does change, uh, the fat accumulation maybe in different areas, but also underneath that or occurring con- concurrently is there is there a decline in lean mass as well around that period? Yeah, and and so... I think generally we know across the lifespan there's this linear change, uh, but that's what there's more data coming out and some of what we're looking at is we were surprised to see that there potentially is a bigger change, more of a, um, you know, a a change from that perimenopause window. Um, And one positive thing I see is, you know, let's not talk about all the bad changes. Let's talk about how we can prevent them from happening. And if we look at even some of the things we've talked about with changes in muscle and increases in fat mass and changes in metabolism, those are all things that can be tackled with lifestyle. Um, I think the other really important piece that is often not talked about is we know a lot about what happens in postmenopause, and there's a lot of research of how we help those women. But perimenopause is this time that women are, you know, really taking care of everyone else and often at the peak of their career or their workload, you know, even if they're, you know, have a, if they're at home. And so they often aren't prioritizing their health. And, and, you know, that may be a reason that some of these things are changing quite dramatically. And so it's really trying to understand, okay, what's happening. And then from a physiological and intervention perspective, how do we help them in a very feasible way that can impact their lifelong health and maybe prevent some of those things that we see happening in postmenopause or at least delay them? Yeah, it's a really good point. It's a really sort of holistic point. You mentioned some of your research around women, the surveys with women, particularly users of like supplements, that, as you mentioned, that they seem to be in this perimenopausal phase, like stretched to their, maybe got kids, have like parents who are starting to develop health conditions, they're trying to juggle a career and be a wife or a partner or whatever else. They seem to be pulled in, you know, a thousand different directions and their sleep might be affected. So, as you suggested, it may not just be purely physiological, perhaps if they're getting poor sleep and stressed and cravings and so forth, they're less likely to be motivated to exercise. So yeah, can you just touch upon some of the, the research you've um, looked at and found around the, I suppose, more the, the, the psychology or the, the bigger picture around females in this perimenopause phase? Yeah, we, uh, we haven't looked at yet the psychology and there's some groups that are doing it and we've started to incorporate it, but I'll say kind of a global perspective. You're exactly right. There's things like sleep that's changing that impacts, you know, physiology. Um, there's a very large mental component of, um, you know, sometimes in the literature we hear it called kind of a change in brain fog. Uh, we also see increased anxiety and depression in this group. And, you know, 
as a physiologist, sometimes I'm asking myself and based on, you know, the interaction with these women is sometimes those changes are based on their unhappiness with their bodies and how they feel, Um, you know, so is it one causing the other? Are they interrelated? Um, And so when we look at the benefits of exercise and many nutritional things, those are some very um, kind of effective strategies to help with the mental health and the sleep. It's not, you know, obviously there's medication for a reason, but um, those are some some strategies that can help that women have control of. And sometimes it's recognizing that because often and and the messaging is, you know, exercise more, eat less. Um, or, you know, really taking care of everyone else. And those are the things that aren't productive for what's happening physiologically to these women. Um, and so a lot of what we're trying to do is let's give them some some data-driven, um, evidence-based ways to actually help them achieve their goals and feel better and sleep better and and feel, you know, mentally feel better. Yeah, yeah, well said. And yeah, just want to underscore, it's a good point that exercise sometimes helps with mental health and and supplementation we'll get to like creatine can help when you're sleep deprived and so forth so yeah you're right it's a a two-way street all right so let's have a look at now you've discussed a fair bit around uh, macronutrients in women i thought we could tackle it just broadly around women's needs and then maybe through different sort of hormonal profiles perhaps this is probably the the flip side and you just mentioned it like eat less sorry yeah eat less exercise more one thing you mentioned in your research is when when we're looking at the macronutrients particularly active women may not be getting enough certain macronutrients and before that overall caloric intake so there's this concept of uh, reds or relative energy deficiency or the the female triad athlete triad around not getting enough energy relative to their needs can you describe that and the the health implications of this? Yeah, so I mean, this becomes so this kind of concept of low energy availability becomes more of a an important conversation for active women, just because um, often women are exercising as a means to burn calories, or it's just making it harder to fuel. And so when we look at caloric intake, a lot of times low calorie intake, um, that is the driving force of loss of menstrual cycle, not in perimenopause, not as like a physiological change in hormones, but um, in, in, you know, if we're normally menstruating. And so, you know, the calorie intake is, is a very important piece for just maintaining normal hormonal function um, that impacts everything. And so I think that is often under discussed you know, you know, macronutrients matter, but first and foremost, making sure you're eating frequently enough. And all of the literature suggests that active women under consume food. Um, they're just not getting enough. So that's why that's part of the conversation. And long-term implications is that we know that, um, you know, if we are not having a menstrual cycle when we should be, it impacts bone mineral density. Um, and there's, you know, there's some other potential impacts on cardiovascular disease and health and fertility. I think there's less unknown about once our menstrual cycle, what are the long-term impacts? I don't think we know, but um, so that's why we say calories first, or the, that's a big concern. And and then I think um, the macronutrient recommendations is what I kind of find interesting is that we know there's metabolic differences in fuel utilization uh, for women than men, yet our nutrition recommendations are the same. Mm. 
And that doesn't mean they should always be different, but I think it's recognizing that um, there are potential metabolic differences. And if a woman isn't responding or they're gaining weight or they are not gaining muscle like their goals, then like let's dial in the nutrition. Let's take a closer look at the impact on hormones. And, and I think as a researcher, we should also be asking the question, should it be different? Uh, and, and a lot of what we've looked at too is maybe the overall quantity isn't different, but um, the timing of when we eat our carbs and proteins may be different for women versus men. Yeah. So yeah, let's have a look at some of these macronutrients. So carbohydrates, as you just mentioned, the, the timing. I'm not sure where where it is in the U.S., but uh, carbohydrates in some circles has been a you know taboo or a, a bad thing mm-hmm. for um, a long period of time. And uh, I think it feels like they're moving to actually time restriction seems to be the, the new sort of carbohydrate. <laughs> um, but carbohydrates, yeah, I think you mount a good case in your um, papers that obviously they're really, really important, but more so in, as you mentioned, in different parts of the cycle, uh, recovery can be compromised and so forth. So yeah, carbohydrates in general, do you have a sort of a recommendation or is there a is there a limit where it's alarming where it's too low? I know people are in it. Do you follow ketogenic diets? But it, are there costs to that um, or is there opportunities that you can have carbohydrates after exercise? What, what's some of the nuances around women? Yeah, I mean, this, we could ha- talk just about carbohydrates, but um, I think that is partly why I like to talk about carbohydrates is women avoid them. And I think it's a different conversation if you're talking about uh, a woman that's doing a lot of aerobic exercise. Carbohydrates are going to be more important for her than for a woman that is trying to lose weight. And um, kind of one general high-level point I would tell both women is that um, there's some good science that suggests a slightly lower carbohydrate to protein ratio is more optimal for a woman. And what I mean by that is I'll use the traditional, like most people know that when you finish exercise, having like chocolate milk post-exercise might be helpful. And chocolate milk is a four-to-one carb-to-protein ratio. And and so unless you've just run a marathon or depleted muscle glycogen, a a woman might do better on more of a a two-to-one carb-to-protein ratio. So something more of like a white milk versus a chocolate milk um, because it's slightly lower carb-to-protein ratio. And so globally speaking, because women are utilizing more fat for fuel, they may, you know, have slightly lower carbohydrate needs. Uh, But then it gets into, there are some potential differences in carbohydrate utilization across a normal menstrual cycle. And so the way I would play that is, you know, not every woman needs to change her carbohydrate intake, you know, across the cycle. But let's say you are doing something um, like a marathon in your high hormone phase, then, you know, really considering um, and, and understanding that carbohydrate needs are slightly different. Um, so potentially increasing carbohydrates, uh, you know, prior to the week a little bit more so that you can saturate muscle glycogen. Whereas in the follicular phase, let's say your event is there, um, kind of more consistent uh, feeding of carbohydrate during the event may be important because you're oxidizing more carbohydrate. And and so I think that the global view is you shouldn't change your nutrition across the menstrual cycle yet. We don't know that, but it is important to realize that it differs. And if we start seeing things of lack of recovery, fatigue, um, inability to perform or greater muscle soreness, like recognizing what is happening and what are some nutritional things that we can do to, to mitigate that? Because often either eating more 
or changing the type of food that we eat can help um, kind of put that on an even space. Yeah, interesting. Uh, let's have a look at protein now. Again, I don't know if you've had data or your own anecdotal experience, but again, it feels like women would be not consuming adequate protein levels because there's a, a hormonal um, drive that impairs like this muscle protein synthesis and particularly if they're dieting as well um there is a greater need is that correct or can you can you explain yeah no i mean i think the first and foremost point is everyone is doing this intermittent fasting and women you know if they're seeing this waking they're often not having meals and so the protein intake we do see there is some evidence to just kind of baseline levels might be slightly higher so some of the literature suggests about 1.6 grams per kilogram as kind of a base. And then obviously, if you're under caloric restriction, you'd want to go up with that. And and so it really becomes a conversation of women tend to avoid or not. I mean, a lot of us, not just women, but, um, you know, are not maybe getting adequate amounts of protein. And then if we are, we're not evenly spacing them throughout the day. You know, we restrict during the day and then eat more at night, which is not optimal for maintaining muscle mass and body composition. And so a lot of times this conversation is, you know, how much protein are you getting? And let's make sure that we space that, like don't skip breakfast, like let's eat about 20 to 30 grams evenly spaced throughout the day. Uh, and then if you are active or if you can be active, uh, some of what we've looked at is what do we eat around exercise? And it's appearing that having some protein prior to exercise uh, may be more advantageous for a woman as far as kind of maximizing energy expenditure and fat utilization and recovery. Yeah, yeah, nice. And also with the the protein, again, there is a a shift or a trend of like vegetarian veganism, which I understand and admire, but that could come at the cost of some essential amino acids or amino acids. Can you describe some of the important amino acids that we need and maybe um, if people are following a more a plant-based or a vegetarian vegan diet, ways to ensure they're getting enough? Yeah. So if, if a woman is following a plant-based diet, particularly as she transitions to the menopause, um, that will become harder because what we are likely seeing and kind of initial data suggests some anabolic resistance, meaning now they even need more protein when we, than we originally identified. And so um, <clears throat> for plant-based, most of us should be eating the majority of our diet is plants, but it's being more cognizant about, you know, when you do have plants, getting a nut, a seed and a grain all in a single meal. So helping kind of get all those amino acids, what we call the essential amino acids in a single meal um, and making sure those are kind of available around any sort of exercise or activity and, and that there aren't these kind of lulls between meals. So I always say like a, a pea, a bean, and like a peanut sauce or something to kind of get all those essential amino acids. The other piece is often it's more food. So like if you um, use like a plant-based protein powder, uh, typically you would need two scoops instead of one to get um, adequate amounts of essential amino acids. Okay. I've seen recently, is there like a quote-unquote a whey, a vegan type of whey that seems pretty high, like in leucine and those amino acids? Uh, if you have it, send it to me. I'd be curious. <laughs> I don't have it. I mean, there's um, I know like one strategy I tell women is you can add extra leucine. Yeah. 
Right. Uh, but it's it's really all of the essential amino acids okay. that we need. Yeah. And so um, a better approach is just to to up the volume. But that does come, you know, with it depends on the goal of, mm-hmm. of the woman. Um, so then you run into more calories and fiber and some things there, depending. Yeah. Um, yeah. No problem. All right. So you mentioned we're still or science research is still not quite there yet to sort of quote unquote personalize nutrition in around the menstrual cycle, they did mention that there is variations in metabolism. If there isn't the science yet for like nutritional personalization, what about activity or more just being cognizant? You mentioned, let if I get this correct, say the follicular phase, you're burning more carbohydrates. So hypothetically, you'd be probably better suited to doing like more intense interval training versus through the follicular phase, you women are switching to more or yeah, shifting towards more fat oxidation therefore more sort of long endurance so two-part question sorry about the, the long run-up but <laughs> you're um, good uh-huh. um so could women like schedule or you know periodize whatever you want to call it their exercise around that and or probably the more important thing is could this have an effect on women's sort of performance and say they they do a run and two weeks later they repeat their run that you know they feel terrible that the time's worse and they're like what's going on here Um, could the hormonal sort of fluctuations be in part responsible for that? Yeah. I mean, I think you are asking the right questions because this is not this. I think it's more about, um, a a woman first and foremost, understanding where she has is at in her menstrual cycle or what type of hormonal contraception she's taking. A lot of women have no idea of when they are ovulating and what hormonal phase they're in. Um, and then there's this big debate about how our exercise performance uh, changes as well as nutrition. Um, but you're never going to schedule exercise based on when you're menstruating. That's mm. just like, why would you? Uh, I think first and foremost, it's really allowing the woman to understand, yeah, well, m- why do I feel not as powerful or not as strong or why am I not performing as well as I did two weeks ago? Um, Is it an overtraining issue or is it hormonally related? Like helping understand that or is it because I'm in the luteal phase and I'm not sleeping as well? And so I think it's first really identifying that there are changes. Changes can be quite individualized, but yes, absolutely. If we are trying to compare performance, at least give us some grace to say like, okay, it's not necessarily just performance. There's some other things going on. And then if you're an elite athlete, those things will become more important. If you are an, uh, you know, an active person also recognizing like, yeah, there's a reason I'm more tired now, or I'm, you know, I'm feeling more anxious or I'm having certain cravings. Um, and then to get to your point about the exercise, we, we do broadly know that, you tend to perform better actually during ovulation, which is a couple days. That's kind of when women feel their best. It's also the time they're the most fertile. Uh, and then the, t- the follicular phase, which happens before that, we tend to feel better during higher intensity exercise. And the luteal phase is where we may not feel as good. Uh, but you know what? I, someone could have their peak performance in the luteal phase. That doesn't mean that that can't happen. Mm. It's just, I think, um, collectively, that's the generalization. And then you throw in contraception. And I, there's just a lot we are trying to figure out um, with the idea of still, uh, it, to me, it goes back to the individual and letting these women have more ownership of, of their cycle and 
to be honest, even having the conversation. So are, you know, are you a male coach or a male provider and asking, um, having those conversations with women of, you know, do you notice changes across the cycle? Do you know when you're ovulating? What type of contraception are you using? Do you notice any side effects? Because those can impact um, kind of these higher level aspects of metabolism and physiology. Yeah, yeah, well said. Uh, it did remind me of something I forgot, I've forgotten to ask to this point. The contraceptive pill, that's uh, obviously throws another spare in the works. Any, it seems like there isn't much research yet on performance, metabolism, nutrition, and so forth in uh, pill users can you describe that or is there a signal yet or any sort of insights yeah i mean i think we have to look at what type of contraception and so um you know like a monophasic contraception is the most common in in the u.s which mimics somewhat of a just a kind of one peak of hormones and then down during the placebo week and that provide some consistency. So, you know, we're trying to see, would that mimic more? I mean, the level of hormones matter. Um, and, and then we have more of like our intrauterine devices that are more localized hormones, which may be more like a normal menstrual cycle because there's no kind of broad hormones. How that affects performance, I think one really important takeaway is a lot of times women are taking contraception because of negative side effects of the menstrual cycle, things like cramping, bloating, um, you know, PMS. And so we've done some survey-based research that shows contraception actually helps them feel better. There's a lot more positive effects. And so it's hard to take that, like, does it increase performance? Well, maybe not directly, but maybe indirectly because they feel better. And, and so I think that's what we need to look at. And I mean, as you know, the whoever listens to your podcast about providers, there's so many different types of contraception. And they do a better job now of saying, oh, you know, are you worried about menstrual cramping and acne? Well, we have one type for you versus, um, you know, some other like mental health and some other things. So I think it's, we have a lot of work to be done, but I, I want to just mess, you know, like a lot of times contraception gets this bad, like, oh, it's yeah. going to cause all these things. And it doesn't necessarily like it's not a performance inhibitor. Sometimes it can actually support performance like that. You know, I think we need to know a little bit more, but um, we know some things. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. OK, so we've covered the, the macronutrients. You've also explored supplementation of ingredients, herbals, um, nutrition, and so forth. I want to go through, uh, I've called a bit of a speed round. We'll see how we go. But uh, you've, you've got a bunch of suggestions in your um, papers for, for women and the benefits. What I wanted to highlight was probably the, the lesser known benefits, particularly to, to females in these nutrients. So our audience are probably familiar with, say, omega-3 and its anti-inflammatory properties of vitamin D for bone. But I think you list some really interesting things. So I want to maybe rattle through half a dozen or so ingredients. And if you can give you a sort of elevator pitch, I suppose, on mm-hmm. on why women should maybe consider some of these. So first is, um, I've never covered this before and I've uh, been meaning to, is uh, creatinine. Often, again, probably seen as a, a masculine sort of bro supplement for, for bodybuilding, but I think it's, yeah, it does, a, 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 I suppose, a disservice to creatinine, its effects on bone and brain and so forth. So yeah, um, sell it to me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so when you asked my question about, you know, has my research line changed, I've been studying creatine since like my first study and we had women in that study 
And it was that study where we actually had um, several vegetarians and vegetarian females that uh, participated in this study and would come back and say, actually, my academic performance is better. Like, I'm, I'm thinking better. And, 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 you know, that was, you know, 15 plus years ago. And I think the idea or the importance to realize is that there are even more potential benefits of creatine for women uh, when we think about changes in um, smaller amounts of muscle, small, lower amounts of meat intake, which impacts our ability to kind of saturate creatine. Uh, to me, the exciting part is more related to the brain health as well as um some of the role creatine plays across pregnancy and postpartum. So with a lightning round, a couple <laughs> takeaways I would say is that there's some really interesting data on the use of creatine during pregnancy to prevent um, some negative side effects of uh, birth, like fetal, like protective against some oh, wow. fetal hypoxia. Uh, and then postpartum is the... It, it may help with low amounts of um, depression. So when you think about postpartum depression, creatine can um, potentially mitigate that. And then when we look kind of past that with aging and the loss of muscle, creatine can you know help saturate that as well as um, kind of helping with the mental component as well as kind of fatigue resistance. And then if we look at our last life stage, our older adults, we see when you combine um, creatine with resistance training in postmenopausal women, it actually helps stimulate more bone mineral density yeah amazing you've sold it to me um <laughs> five uh, grams a day I, I think that's also important yeah is women women probably don't need to do a loading dose right um a daily dose uh and we have some brand new data coming out in women across the menstrual cycle for creatine it may help um, kind of maintain hydration and prevent dehydration in the luteal phase interesting Collagen, um, it's touted and popular, and um, I think there's some good data on like skin health, <laughs> but it's more than skin deep, it seems. So what are some of the benefits for collagen? I think there's some bone benefits. Yeah, so collagen, I, I though, would like to tell the, the women, so many women are like, oh, I'm taking collagen. And I would say, well, are you, are you taking a whey protein? I would I would do whey protein. Collagen is not a like a complete protein. Mm. Um, and so whey I would put first. And then collagen, there's some really good growing data on not just bone, but also ligament health, which we know kind of changes over time. Um, and so, yeah, there's some good benefits of collagen, but I would actually prioritize something more of like a whey or an essential amino acid for our women. Um, and then if you have the economic status to buy collagen, then adding that to your whey would be um, beneficial, particularly we see increased rates of things like osteoarthritis and knee, you know, um, joint health changes in women over time. Um, it could be useful in that group. Yep. Probiotics, you're probably preaching to the converted here, but with our audience, but you highlight a couple of interesting areas around uh, nutrient absorption, particularly like iron and even amino acids, which I'd not really heard about. Can you describe some of the benefits of probiotics there? Yeah, so probiotics, I think an important piece is that they're very strain specific. And women uh, report higher GI discomfort and irritable bowel symptoms. And, and even when we look at some female-specific conditions like vaginal yeast infections and UTIs, probiotics can help mitigate all of that. 
And then when you um, think about some of the absorption of something like iron and or amino acids, so if we we had talked a little bit about the anabolic resistance, so if we have, let's say, um, a woman that isn't getting a lot of protein or having some of that muscle wasting, probiotics may potentially help with the absorption um, or at least maximize some of those foods that they're eating. Interesting. Uh, magnesium practitioners and healthcare providers probably know it for its benefits potentially with like PMS, but you mount a good case for menopausal or perimenopausal women. Can you describe some of the benefits for magnesium? Yeah, I think the research on magnesium is really fascinating because we see our needs change across a lifespan. And so really, you know, as women age, they may need more magnesium. Um, one of the things that I think is most interesting is the the research coming out on sleep. And so, you know, one thing we I think we should have said is that I'm a very food first person. That's not say like, you know, like mm, only yes. use magnesium supplements, but sometimes it's hard to get all of this in the diet. Uh, particularly for busy women. And and so magnesium, you know, yes, PMS, but as women age, it can impact sleep, which, you know, impacts a number of things, as well as um, potentially bone based on um, a number of pathways. Yeah. And finally, vitamin D, uh, it's well known for bone. I think probably the evidence isn't as probably as um, impressive as once thought, but I think like immunity in other areas is is really emerging. You mentioned around anemia, which I was um, surprised, but can you describe some of the, I don't, know, I don't want to call it off-label, but the other benefits of vitamin D? Yeah, there's some really fascinating data that my lab hasn't done, but other labs have, looking at um, the kind of the association of iron absorption with vitamin D. And so if you have someone that is anemic, um, low vitamin D may exacerbate that or vice versa. Let's say you are trying to increase iron levels and vitamin D is insufficient. That could um, not be as helpful. So vitamin D may play a role in that. Uh, and I think you, you know, the, the science on vitamin D and immune function is also really interesting because if you take a woman who's under eating and maybe not sleeping as well, um, that immune function is something that we can all use a little bit of help with. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, I'll put links to the, the papers that discuss these nutrients and the macronutrients in, in greater detail. Yeah, well done for crafting these papers. They're really great read and help shed light on the unique needs potentially of women through different life stages and hormonal phases, I suppose. So to um, just to, to wrap up, I'm curious on what, what's in the horizon for you in this sort of women's health space in terms of research. Yeah, we're doing some really cool data or studies right now trying to look at performance and health across the menstrual cycle with different types of contraception, specifically looking at some protein turnover, um, and then really trying to target and understand what's happening to our perimenopausal women. So our early and late perimenopause, it's just this really unknown um, so that we can then create some more tailored intervention. So I'm excited about that. And then um, hoping that we get some more nutrition and dietary supplement data for our women because it just is so slow. There's lots of conversations, which is great, um, but slow to, to come to fruition. So stay tuned on that. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you. I think, as you said, yeah, it's certainly much needed. I'm looking forward to seeing what unfolds. Abby, it's been a pleasure. You're so articulate and full of knowledge. Um, thanks for the time. Any, if people want to find out more about you, your research, or have you got any 
any resources to help people get a better understanding of nutrition for for women? Yeah. Uh, so I, I am on social media. I don't do a great job, but it's at a Smith Ryan and in Twitter and Instagram. And then, um, you know, most of our papers are open access. I think you said you'll link that. And then I always like the international society of sport nutrition. They have some free resources that are easily, you know, easy to access. And, um, there's some great research. It's just getting it to, to the masses, which we'll continue to see. Brilliant. Yeah, those papers, ISSN, is that how you pronounce it? Um, uh-huh. I think yep. They've got some good like monographs and things, haven't they, on, on ingredients and, and so forth. It's great. And their position papers are, yes. are also really helpful. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, maybe we can catch up in the future and learn more about your research. It's been a, a pleasure and um, good luck in the future. Thanks so much for having me. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.